This afternoon's sermon was prepared by Reverend C. Bauman, Canadian Reformed Church at Smithville, Ontario. In response to the sermon, we will sing together from Psalm 46, stanza four and five. Now, let us open our Bibles and read the text for this sermon, John chapter one, the verses 29 through 42, and let us pay special attention to the key text, which would be verse 39a. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except the one who sent me to baptize with water told me. The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the 10th hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated means Peter. <clears throat> Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, some things in life are very obvious because they stare us in the face. That does not include just the very physical things we see and hear and smell day by day, but also the very real pain and struggles of our hearts. The brokenness of life and the struggles that follow, not everyone can see it, but we sure all experience it and feel it. Christmas has always been a season when our thoughts are directed more than usual to the birth of Jesus Christ and to the promise of peace on earth that came through his coming. It is a message we appreciate and so a season we enjoy. But truth be said, 
the message of peace on earth doesn't feel as real as the pain that sits in our hearts. Somehow the pain and the brokenness is louder, more in our face than the peace of Christ's coming. It strikes us that seeing Christ would certainly help us in coping with life's hurt. Seeing him and his peace would at least make the gospel as real and as obvious as the pain. Now we read in our text of Jesus' invitation to the two followers to come and see. And we're a bit jealous. We'd love to see Jesus Christ, see the reality of what he has done. But we're sure we can't because he lived so long ago. Actually, we're wrong on that. For yes, we too are invited to come and see for ourselves, see what God has done and is doing for you in Jesus Christ. I summarize the sermon with this theme. Observe for yourself what God is doing in Jesus Christ. We will explore the setting of Jesus' invitation, the meaning of Jesus' invitation, and finally, the lesson of Jesus' invitation. The passage that we read from John 1 tells us of three men walking along the banks of the River Jordan. One walked ahead, the other two were shadowing the first, going wherever the first went. The first of the three is Jesus of Nazareth. The other two are disciples of John the Baptist. The one is identified as Andrew and the other, well, we're not told, but in all likelihood, in all likelihood it is John, the author of this gospel. We don't know how long they walked, the one up front, the other two following. At a given moment, the one up front turned around to address the two following. He asked the very logical question, what do you want? In other words, why are you following me? That question in turn prompts the two to give this answer. Rabbi, they say, where are you staying? To which Jesus responded with the simple words of our text, come and you will see. Thereupon the three walk on, Jesus leading the way, the other two following to see the place where Jesus was lodging. Come and you will see, said Jesus to the two disciples. The words are simple enough. Yet, brothers and sisters, there is more in these simple and straightforward words of the Savior than that the disciples should literally follow and see for themselves where Jesus was staying. I say that there is more to these words than the obvious, simple, literal meaning because, note it, John saw fit to repeat these same words two more times in this chapter. Jesus' invitation to come and see are echoed in the words immediately following our text where we are told that the two disciples went and saw. And they appear again in the instruction of Philip to Nathanael in verse 46, come and see. John's emphasis on these little words, come and see, compel us to consider 
what Jesus really meant with his invitation to the two disciples following him. The short conversation between Jesus on the one hand and the two men on the other was prompted by the fact that the two had been following Jesus. That's verse 38. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? The reason for their following was giving, given in the verses 35 and 37. John the Baptist had been standing somewhere along the Jordan River, being about his business with a couple of his disciples accompanying him. Jesus walked past. John pointed at him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. This was not the first time that John had spoken thus of Jesus. Just one day earlier, John had seen Jesus coming to him and had uttered the same words. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. At that time, John had gone on to identify his own relation to Jesus, said John yesterday. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me. And John had gone on to tell about Jesus' baptism. Said the Baptist, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. So John could come to his conclusion. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When Jesus on the next day again walked past John, the Baptist again identified Jesus for his disciples. Says John a second time, Behold, the Lamb of God. This was then instruction for John's disciples, instructions about that man walking over there. It was instruction John's disciples could understand, for the phrase, Lamb of God, was known to them from the Old Testament. You remember, in the sacrificial system the Lord had ordained for Israel around the tabernacle, the people were repeatedly to bring sacrifices for sin, we find that in Leviticus 4. The people ought to die on account of their sins, Genesis 2, but the Lord would let an animal die in their place. Specifically, in the Passover celebration, the animal that was to be slaughtered for sin had to be a lamb. Yet the animal could never atone for the sin. It was slaughtered in place of the sinner as instruction to the sinner that another who would one day come to pay for sin, from Isaiah 53. And the Old Testament scripture made clear that this other who would pay for sin would come from God. God himself would provide the lamb who was to take the sin away. Well now, John saw Jesus of Nazareth walking past. The man whom he had baptized the man on whom the Holy Spirit had come. Prophet that he was, John now proclaimed to his disciples the identity of this Jesus of Nazareth. Behold, he said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. By so saying, John announced to his disciples the fulfillment of the Old Testament scripture concerning the Lamb. 
Here, he says, is the one prophesied in the Old Testament. Says John to his disciples, through this man, God is working forgiveness of sins, is bringing complete redemption. This one will conclusively reconcile sinners to God. Behold, the Lamb of God. John's disciples were normal men, people like you and me who suffered daily the painful consequences of our fall into sin in paradise. The headaches and the heartaches that characterize this broken life filled their homes and their lives as well. That there is now a man who would atone for sin and take away the bitter effects of sin demanded but one conclusion. Follow him. Find out who he is. So the two left the teacher standing where he was and followed the Lamb of God as he continued to walk along the river. Jesus was true God, knew that as Herald John had said to the, had said to the two disciples concerning him, knew that the two disciples had left their teacher to follow him. In that context, Jesus turned, saw his two shadowers, and asked his question, what do you want? The answer of the two disciples is this, Rabbi, where are you staying? They used the word rabbi, a word which John, to which John directs our attention, for he translates it for us, rabbi means teacher. As it turns out, the word rabbi means literally my great one. The person who calls another rabbi expresses with that term that the other is higher in rank than he himself is. By using this title then, the two disciples indicate to Jesus that they understood the teaching of John the Baptist. Understood that Jesus was ranked highly, was preferred before John. They esteem Jesus, and that's why they follow him. They esteem the Lamb of God, and so want to be taught by him. They call him by the titles pupils commonly give to their teacher. They want to be taught, want to get to know the Lamb of God, and so want to know, too, where Jesus is staying. They want to spend time with Jesus, talk with him, learn from him. And so they follow him, looking for an opportunity to sit down and talk. What do you want? Jesus asked them, and they tell him, we believe that you are the Lamb of God, and so understand that we need to learn much from you. And so we want to know where you lodge so that we can sit with you and talk. That's their answer. And in the face of that response, we read the words of our text. <coughs> he said to them, come and see. That then tells us the setting of Jesus' invitation. At Jesus' first encounter with these two men, while the two men themselves know and believe that Jesus is the Lamb of God, Jesus invites the two to come and see. Come and you will see, invited Jesus. John tells us the response of the two disciples to this invitation. They came and saw. 
It is true that these words strike us as so simple and straightforward. Please remember though, brothers and sisters, that these two disciples believe Jesus to be the Lamb of God, and so they want instruction from him. There is a reason why they call Jesus Rabbi. But remarkably, we get to hear nothing of the instruction they received in Jesus' house. We are only told that they remained with him that day, and they got there around the 10th hour, which appears to be about four in the afternoon, so they could talk all evening. Why is it that we don't hear the conversation between them and Jesus? Here, brothers and sisters, I come back to what I said earlier about the emphasis John lays on the words, come and you will see. The fact is that those little words are themselves a quote from Old Testament scriptures. Jesus, teacher that he is, directs them to the scripture to make them see for themselves what God in heaven is busy doing in Jesus of Nazareth. How so? The words come and see echo in particular in two Psalms, Psalm 46 and Psalm 66. We read Psalm 46 together. Verse eight extends the invitation to come and see the works of the Lord. There is an invitation to come along to see what there is to see, to leave the spot where you are now in order to check out for yourselves what God has done. The background of Psalm 46 cannot be determined with certainty, but respected commentators suggest that the psalm was written in response to the slaughter of the Assyrians by the angel of the Lord after the Assyrians had besieged Jerusalem in the days of Hezekiah. Be that as it may, the point is that God had worked desolations on the earth and the evidence lay outside for all to see. One need but get out of one's house, climb the city wall, and look into the fields around Jerusalem to see the very physical and tangible evidence of the works of the Lord. It was all laying there on the plains below. The bow and the spear were broken, the shields were burned with fire, the war had been made to cease. The evidence lay concretely before your eyes. You could see it and could appreciate it only if you first believe that this was God's work. What was the implication of coming to see God's own, God's mighty deeds on the plains below? This, God, isn't just some vague someone in the sky. And faith in God is not just a good feeling. The people in Jerusalem had been stressed so cruelly by the terrifying Assyrians as their grip on that city had tightened with the passing weeks. But God had provided concrete relief. God was real. God was there. God was real for me. God was there for the individual resident of Jerusalem. 
So each person could confess in Psalm 46 his own personal faith. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, and the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. These were statements rooted in a very physical and visible evidence of God's mighty deeds. This God worked a victory that all could see and all could experience. Come, behold the works of the Lord. And we can imagine that the people of Jerusalem were more than happy to climb up the walls of the city to see with their own eyes the victory that their God had worked. As to the second psalm, in which that instruction to come and see appears, Psalm 66, the same sort of things could be said. That is, God's mighty deeds of deliverance and the consequences flowing from them are apparent for the eye to see. One can come and see, get up and check out the claims made about the Lord God. This God has acted in history, acted in a very real and verifiable and tangible ways. That's the point of the call in those two psalms, to come and see. There stands now Jesus of Nazareth telling his two followers, come and you will see. Given the background of those words in Psalm 46 and 66, what work of God must these two disciples come and see? Jesus is the Lamb of God, John the Baptist had said. That is, God himself had given Jesus of Nazareth as the Lamb to the people, given him for slaughter, so that through him atonement might be made for sins. Sinners delivered from slavery to sin and Satan be reconciled to God. In this lamb, God himself would fulfill all the sacrifices and the ceremonies of the law. And the result would be that sinners are set free, can enter again into the presence of God himself. In a word, here is a deliverance that is more radical, more glorious, more lasting than the deliverance behind Psalm 46. More, the deliverance behind Psalm 46 is a foreshadowing of this glorious deliverance. That sin would be paid for, that Satan be defeated. The people of God set free from bondage to sin and the devil. Talk about a wonderful work that God would do. The disciples may know Jesus to be the Lamb of God, and so they are invited to come with Jesus. Not just today, but all the time. So they might see for themselves the awesome work which God was doing in the Christ. No, we don't get to hear the conversation Jesus had with these two disciples once the three of them arrived at Jesus' place. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day, and they talked enough for Andrew to say to Brother Simon afterwards, 
We have found the Messiah. They talked, and as a result of the conversation, these two disciples saw, came to recognize that in Jesus of Nazareth, God was doing a mighty work of salvation. They came and saw what God was doing and so believed that Jesus was the Christ. And in time to come, they continued to follow Jesus around to see what God was doing in Jesus of Nazareth. For three years, Andrew and his companion saw with their own eyes God's work in Jesus Christ. They saw it. The sick were healed. Demons were cast out. The dead were raised. Persons bound by sin delivered from their bondage. More, they saw this Lamb of God sacrificed for sin on the cursed cross. Heard Jesus cry out, too, that all was finished. Saw that he died in triumph, was buried. Saw that he arose from the dead in majesty. They came and saw, saw so much, and wrote it down for our comfort. Says John himself in his first letter. And notice the repetition of the word seen. Says John himself in his first letter. That which was from the beginning, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, and we have seen, and bear witness, and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that your joy may be full. John came and saw the works of God in Jesus Christ, saw with his own eyes the Lamb of God indeed paid for sin. And so he rejoiced. He told us of what he saw, and so in turn, our joy also may be full. The lesson of Jesus' invitation. What is it now, beloved, that we learn from the invitation of Jesus to the two disciples to come and see? We learn this. God's work does not float in the sky. It is not unattached from the realities of this life. God does his work, and the people in pain of this life can see it. God worked very concrete deliverance in the days of Psalm 46, a work so real and concrete that the people of Jerusalem could go and see with their own eyes what God had done for them. God in Christ worked a very real deliverance in the days of Andrew and John, worked so concretely that with their own eyes they could see what this work of God was all about. They could see it, and they could rejoice. And we? No, we can't climb the walls of Edmonton to see the enemy defeated outside. And we can't follow Jesus of Nazareth in the literal, physical manner as Andrew and John did, and watch him cast out demons, raise the dead, and do other miracles 
that prophesy the destruction of the effects of our sin. Yet God would have us too come and see, to come and see the awesome works that he is doing today. What awesome works, you ask, is he doing today? This. Christ's work of salvation, gained so long ago, is today applied to God's people so that persons by nature dead in sin are made to believe. And this, God's pre preserving work is applied today so that you and I are made to persevere in the faith God has worked in our hearts. You see, God's work was not limited to the days of Psalm 46 or the days of Jesus' sojourn on earth. As if today the matter of religion is academic. God, but a distant being far removed from our lives and experiences today? No. Today God works. Today God applies to sinful hearts the salvation he worked in Christ long ago. Today God works, works concretely, works in such a way that you can see it and that you can experience it. So, my beloved, the invitation of Psalm 46 remains as real for you today as it was for those first hearers of the psalm so long ago. You too, like Andrew and John, are invited to come and see the works of God to see in your own life God's triumph in Jesus Christ over sin and darkness. More, the chosen, the believing, can see. For God was pleased to open the eyes of the spiritually blind so that they can see for themselves what he has done in our hearts and lives. That recreating, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of sinners remains concrete evidence that, yes, God is at work in us. Once more, the chosen, the believing, will see, for God's work cannot be but noticed, seen, and observed. It is not possible to believe in God, to be regenerated by his spirit, and yet not notice, see God's very real work in your own heart and life. The command of scriptures to come and see is not an invitation given to the blind. God opens the eyes of his people so that we can really see his work in our lives. That in turn, my brothers and sisters, that it is for all of us, children of God as we claim to be, to come and see the awesome deeds God has done through Jesus Christ for us, to us, and in us. To see that the work of God in our lives will fill the heart of the believing sinner with the deepest thankfulness, joy, humility, and give cause for peace and security 
and joy of Psalm 46 and of 1 John 1 to settle and to grow in our hearts. Yes, we'd love to see God, see Christ once born in Bethlehem, see the truth of the forgiveness of sins, of life eternal. Your God congregation would have you see. No, not him, not yet, but his work. Let that be enough. Believe in him and then see for yourself the evidence that his word is sure. And the day comes soon that you will see him face to face. Then the pain that's now so dominant will be no more. For what we see in Christ will be our everything. Amen.